This message is brought to you by Alliance Bible Church located in Mequon, Wisconsin. Our vision is to captivate generations with the satisfying gospel of Jesus Christ. For more information about Alliance Bible Church or other resources, please check out our website, myabc.church. If you have your Bibles or a smartphone or a tablet, open that please to Acts chapter 9. Acts chapter 9. The book of Acts tells us that when Christianity was at its most potent, when it was most vital, it grew through conversion. Christianity was and is a power that converts. It transforms you from the inside out. And the classic example of this is seen in the conversion story of Saul, the story that we're going to look at today, who would later become known as the Apostle Paul. Now, if we were studying the book of Acts chapter by chapter, we would discover something. Luke, who wrote Acts, records a number of conversion stories. But no conversion story does he talk about more frequently than Saul's conversion story. So we should all take that as a hint. Luke wants us to pay close attention to this conversion story. So let's read about it. Acts chapter 9, starting in verse 1. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus, so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus whom you're persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city and you will be told what you must do. The men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound but did not see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand into Damascus. For three days he was blind and did not eat or drink anything. In Damascus, there was a disciple named Ananias. The Lord called to him in a vision, Ananias. Yes, Lord, he answered. The Lord told him, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. In a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. Lord, Ananias answered, I have heard many reports about this man and all the harm he has done to your holy people in Jerusalem. And has come here with authority from the chief priests to arrest all who call on your name. But the Lord said to Ananias, go, this man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Then Ananias went to the house and entered it. Placing his hands on Saul, he said, brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes, and he could see again. He got up and was baptized. After taking some food, he regained his strength. We're going to be looking at four aspects to Christian conversion. And as we do, I want to encourage you to do what this Saul, the Apostle Paul, would tell the church in Corinth years later. He wrote to them saying, examine yourselves to see if you're in the faith. 
As we look at his own story, his own conversion story, I want to encourage you to think about that. Examine yourself to see if you're in the faith. Has this happened in your life? We're going to look at it in our four headings. Here it is. The mess it creates, the effect it has, a sign it's needed, and who it's for. The mess it creates, the effect it has, a sign it's needed, and who it's for. Let's dive in first, the mess it creates. Now look, Jesus appeared to more than 400 people after his resurrection. None of them, at least recorded, are quite as dramatic as this one. We have a story of him revealing himself to his disciples, but that was kind of a very calm, quiet, tranquil discussion by the lakeside over a campfire while they ate boiled fish. This story is of a different nature. Jesus bursts into Saul's life, knocks him to his knees, and literally blinds him with light brighter than the noonday sun. Charles, uh, Saul's travel companions have to lead him by the hand the rest of the journey into Damascus, where for the next three days he remained a bumbling blind man, trying to figure out what happened to him. This was an all-out spiritual assault that Jesus did into the life of Saul. Now look, we as Christians have romanticized views of the conversion experience. We hear that someone's become a Christian and we think, wonderful. Cue Tara's theme from Gone with the Wind, played in the background. Conversion is often not a graceful change of direction. Jesus used the imagery of being born again to describe the conversion experience. You ever been in a birthing room? It gets a little bit messy. Conversion will wreck your life. Rosaria Butterfield was a tenured professor of English and women's studies at Syracuse University. She also chaired the LGBT advocacy group on campus, and herself, she herself was a lesbian. At the time, she had no relationship with Jesus until Jesus exploded into her life in a manner similar to that of Saul's. And as she recounts her own story, these are her words. Listen, conversion put me in a complicated and comprehensive chaos. I sometimes wonder, when I hear other Christians pray for the salvation of the lost, if they realize that this comprehensive chaos is the desired end of such prayers. Often people ask me to describe the lessons that I learned from this experience. She says, I can't. It was too traumatic. This was my conversion in a nutshell. I lost everything but the dog. Conversion can make a mess. Now, upon first blush, you look at what Jesus does with Saul, what he does with Rosaria Butterfield, and countless others, and you think, he's being mean. This is just flat out mean. But he's not. I want you to see what he's doing. Jesus is not punishing, he's rescuing. This is a rescue, this is not a punishment. But sometimes the rescue is messy. I think I can help relate this to you in a human experience. Just, okay, let's imagine for a minute, okay? Take, imagine you're taking a walk through the woods. Okay, you got it in your mind's eye, you're taking a walk through the woods. Dominant sounds are the crunching underneath your feet and the wind blowing through the trees. Those are the dominant sounds. But in the midst of that, a third sound penetrates the other two. It's the sound of a faint scream off in the distance. And so you begin to adjust your trajectory to take you to its source. 
After clearing the tree line, you spot the scream's origin. It's a makeshift tent, white canvas for the shelter and sturdy tree branches for the frame. You, you cautiously make your way to its entrance with the screams now deafening. Once you step inside, you're horrified by what you see. One man is cutting off the leg of another man. The words torture and cruelty and inhumane aptly describe the scene. But what if I was to say to you, what you think is a torture is actually a rescue. What you are lacking is context for what you see. The context is this. The date is July 2nd, 1863. The location is Gettysburg, Pennsylvania. The situation is the American Civil War. And what you're witnessing is not a torture, but a rescue. A medic amputates to save a life. The mess conversion creates is not Jesus enacting a vendetta. The mess conversion creates is a rescue from something far worse than the mess itself. If Jesus doesn't create this mess now, just as it would be for that Civil War soldier, there will be a whole worse mess to endure later, one from which there is no rescue. This is the mess conversion creates. But it's not a punishment. It's a rescue. Second, the effect it has. Now through Jesus' confrontation of Saul, we learn something about Christian conversion. We learn that Christian conversion is not a response to some general spiritual or emotional experience. Jesus explodes, when Jesus explodes into Saul's life, Saul does not say, what is this experience I'm having? No, what does he say? Who are you, Jesus? Who are you? See, Christian conversion always involves asking Jesus, who are you? Not, who are you in some general sense? Saul knew who Jesus was or claimed to be or what people said about him. That's why he's persecuting Christians to begin with. Saul intellectually understood, understood the information, but the penny hadn't dropped. See, the effect of conversion isn't to give you an emotional high that is designed to give you enough fuel to make it to the finish line of your life. No, the effect of conversion is to overwhelm you with a glimpse of Christ. The effect of conversion is to intoxicate you with Jesus. The effect of conversion is to plant in you an obsession with Jesus. See, there are lots of people out there, and you might be one of them, who have been duped into thinking they're Christians because they've had some subjective, emotional, religious experience. But if Jesus didn't become foremost in your mind's eye, that's not a conversion. Some ambiguous emotional or religious experience is not a conversion. Here's how you know You've been converted. You want to know how you've been converted? Here's how you know. You have a fire in your belly to explore the question, who are you, Jesus? You have a fire in your belly to explore the question, who are you, Jesus? Imagine what Saul was doing for those days, those three days when he's blind. Imagine what he was doing for the 14 years in between that experience and the first letter he writes. What's he doing? He's got to be wrestling with this. What he thought to be true about Jesus, he's wrestling with that. He is wrestling with now with a stubborn fact. Jesus really is alive. He's wrestling with the far-reaching implications of Jesus' real identity. 
So you know you've been converted when you have a fire in your belly to explore the question, who are you, Jesus? I read a story last week that humorously illustrates this. The, uh, the story was of an eight-year-old boy, Ohio boy, and uh, apparently it was in the later evening hours and that uh, this eight-year-old got a fire in his belly for a McDonald's cheeseburger. Yeah. A fire in his belly for a McDonald's cheeseburger. But there was a problem. His parents had already gone to bed and were asleep. So what is an eight-year-old to do? How hot exactly was that fire burning for Mickey D's cheeseburger? Well, naturally, as I'm sure we would all conclude, he began watching driving instruction videos on YouTube. And after doing so, he put his four-year-old sister in his parents' minivan. (laughs) Yes, my friends, never underestimate the power of the YouTube video. (laughs) Because this eight-year-old managed to make it the one and a half miles from his house through four intersections and pull up to the drive-through window. This is a true story, by the way. When the workers saw this, they thought they were being pranked. But when they scoured the van and realized there were no adults in there, they realized this was no prank. So they promptly called the police. The police showed up. They sit the two children down, as you can imagine. They had a little conversation with them and explained to them how wrong and, in fact, illegal it was that they were doing this. And upon hearing that, they, of course, burst into tears. But you don't need to feel sorry for them. They were able to eat their cheeseburgers (laughs) while they waited for their family to arrive. Wow, you talk about having a fire in your belly for a Mickey D's cheeseburger. Look, the effect of conversion, the effect of conversion is to create that kind of passion and urgency in your belly for Jesus. Do you have that fire? Better question, would Jesus say you have that fire? To know him, to follow him, to serve him, to obey him, that's the effect of conversion. Third, a sign it's needed. Now we know that Saul was a very well-educated Jewish man. He studied under the premier Old Testament scholar of that day. That sounds great. However, Saul was not a nice man. The very first time we're introduced to him in the book of Acts, he's present at the scene of the first martyrdom of a Christian. Stephen, who was bold in his faith, was stoned to death, a horrific way to die. And we're told Saul was there, present, nodding approvingly of the whole thing. In chapter 8, verse 3, this is what we read. Saul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off both men and women and put them in prison. Well, you look at this, no wonder he needs to be converted. Look at all he's done. Look at all he's doing. So Jesus confronts him on his way to carry out more persecution, knocks him off his feet, overwhelms him with a light, speaks to him. Listen, the way he speaks to Saul is the bombshell of the whole story. Look at what Jesus says to him. Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? It's the bombshell of the whole passage. It looks like a glitch. Like, wait a minute. Maybe that's a mistake, but it's said twice, so we don't miss it. Very next verse, I am Jesus 
whom you are persecuting. Now this confrontation is very interesting. Jesus isn't interested in listening to how Saul would answer theological questions. What do you believe about Jesus? What do you believe about God? What do you believe about the Bible? He's not interested in hearing any of that. Jesus goes in a completely different direction. He targets Saul's relationship with Christians. He goes after the nature of Saul's engagement with the church. And notice Jesus doesn't say to Saul, why do you persecute them? Notice he says, why do you persecute me? Imagine being Saul and hearing that. You think to yourself, now, <laughs> well, I, actually, I don't know who you are, but I'm not persecuting you. I'm on my way to persecute them. I wasn't planning on persecuting anyone quite so bright. <laughs> Jesus is saying, no, Saul, what you're doing to them, you're doing to me. We can't be separated. That's the bombshell of the whole story. Jesus so identifies himself with Christians, the church, that what is done to them is done to him. There's no separation between the two. Jesus looks at Saul's life and his relationship with Christians, the church, and he concludes this man needs to be converted. I wonder if Jesus is saying the same thing about you today. Your relationship with and to the church is a reflection of the true nature of your relationship with Jesus. Some of you are here today because it's Easter, and I'm very glad that you're here. But let's just state the facts. I may not see a lot of you until Christmas. When Jesus looks at your relationship with the church, what kinds of questions would he ask? Why do you ignore me so much? Why do you prefer other things over me? Why do I get your leftovers? Your relationship with and to the church is a reflection of your relationship with Jesus. Let me tell you something, there's no separation, none, between your love for Jesus and commitment to his church. None. One sign you need to be converted is that there's very little intermingling of your life with the life of the church. One sign you're not a true believer, a true Christian to begin with, is that there is very little intermingling of your life with the life of the church. Think about this another way. Did you know that Jesus calls the church his bride? Did you know that? You can't love Jesus and hate his bride any more than you can say to me, Brian, you're great. We'd like to have you over for dinner, but we can't stand your skank of a wife. I got her permission before I said that. <laughs> kind of. <laughs> now listen, your involvement in the church is a reflection of the health of your relationship with Jesus. There's no separation between love for Jesus and commitment to his church. So when Jesus evaluates your commitment to his church, when Jesus evaluates your commitment to his church, what would he discover is your love for him? Last, who it's for. This is heavy. I get it, it's heavy. I wanna conclude with a couple of words of encouragement from Saul's conversion story. Here's the first. Your past 
doesn't disqualify you from God's grace. Your past, with whatever it looks like, doesn't disqualify you from God's grace. Now, your relationship to the church is probably not like Saul's relationship was to the church. But maybe your relationship to the church can be characterized by indifference, separation, withdrawal. If God's grace can extend to Saul, it can extend to you. Your past, with all its blemishes, doesn't disqualify you from God's grace. Second, your past doesn't disqualify you from future use. Never forget the church's greatest missionary. The church's greatest missionary was once its greatest enemy. God took a man who sought to stomp out the church and turn him into a man that sought to proliferate the church. Your past, with all its stuff, doesn't disqualify you from future use. Now right now, you might be someone, you might be someone who is indifferent about the church. Someone who is relatively uninterested in the church. Someone who's disengaged from the life of the church. All of that is revealing the true condition of your relationship with Jesus. But God can change that. He can turn you into someone passionate to see the mission of the church expand. Your past doesn't disqualify you from future use. The risen Jesus can burst into your life and set your heart ablaze for him and his church. I want to show you a story of one woman in our church. The story is dramatic. And as you listen carefully, you're going to hear a lot of the themes that we've looked at in Saul's story. You're going to hear a lot of those themes in her story. And I hope, I hope, the one takeaway that you have from it is to realize that God is after you if you're far from him. He is after you. Let's take a look. After my parents divorced, we were raised by our mother. Um, the household that we lived in was pretty abusive. So when I was 11, my brother and I started going to youth group at Alliance. Um, this was pretty much the only exposure that we had to um, Jesus and the gospel and stuff. And I always felt safe there, which was, you know, a new feeling for me. Um, nobody in the youth group or really many of my friends knew about the abuse at home. It kind of was just normal to us. So I don't think we even thought that we should tell anybody. It's just kind of the way that it always was. A few years later is when I met Chris. In the beginning, he was very, you know, kind, loving, and accepting. About a month or two into the relationship, it just kind of switched. He went from that to kind of just doing whatever he could to break me down. 
Um, he would say things chipping away at my character and who I was. Um, he was abusive in all the ways that you can be abusive. At that point, I was so defeated and depressed that I just believed everything that he said about me. While him and I were dating, there was somebody close to our family that was um, violating me for an extended period of time. Um, I was told that I couldn't tell anybody because it would ruin this person's life. Not being able to talk to anyone, I kind of just buried it and it sat in my mind just festering. And it just, man, it, it just ate away at me. There's something so hard about having something happen and being broken and you can't explain to anybody why you're so broken because you're not allowed to talk about it. It's very isolating and as a result, I just felt very alone all the time. Fortunately, I was able to finally get out of the relationship with Chris when my family moved to Texas and I decided to go with them and go to nursing school there. Then after I graduated nursing school, my mom moved the family back up to Wisconsin. So it was around this time also that I ended up in the hospital with kidney stones. Um, while I was there, they put me on morphine, they gave me painkillers, all that stuff. To be honest, it was amazing. It took away the physical pain, but more importantly, took away the emotional pain. And I, I, it was the first time I had relief from all that internal struggle. It was the first time and it, it, it just felt so good not to have that, um, that constant panic. I just remember a few times trying to stop and I would go through severe opioid withdrawal. And then not only that, but then I would feel the emotional pain of everything just hit me like a ton of bricks and I couldn't do it. I became somebody that I didn't recognize. I was lying, I was cheating, I was stealing, I was manipulating all of the closest people around me. The real me was so far buried that I didn't even I didn't even think that I was there anymore. So one night, I can't even remember why, but I just remember um, praying to God that he would help me to get out of this situation. I knew that I couldn't stop using drugs on my own. I tried and I kept failing. And so I prayed and I just begged for his help and I asked him that he would do whatever it would take to force me to get clean. And it was about a week later that my drug problem was brought to light where I was working as a nurse. I was arrested, I lost my job, I had my nursing license suspended. It was by far the most humiliating but humble, humbling thing that has ever happened to me. But it was the best thing that ever happened because it saved my life. Out of sheer desperation, I moved back in with my mom. I was constantly being told, you're never gonna change, you're never gonna change, you're always gonna be the same. I was pretty exhausted by that, but I found the strength one Sunday to go to church with my sister because she needed help with the kids. Um, so I went and there was a guest speaker that day and he was giving his testimony. He talked about how he used to have anger problems and um, he had tried for so long to change and he couldn't. He was even you know, physically abusive to his wife and kids and he just thought he was too far gone. But one day he just started praying to God every day, asking him if he would change his heart. And he started reading his Bible every day. And uh, I just 
I left that service and that was exactly what I needed to hear because it was, you know, I saw somebody sort of like me that, you know, had success and that God had done this for and I wanted that for my life. And so I went home, I started reading Ephesians and just, you know, one verse at a time, really letting it soak in. Um, I started praying every day that, you know, that God would change my heart. Um, after I'd been reading the Bible for, I think it was only two days, um, all of a sudden it was like my eyes were opened to the situation and I saw my sin, my mistakes, everything for what it was. And just the weight of that was so heavy and, you know, feeling the full impact of what Christ did for me on the cross and understanding that, man, if I was the only one, he would have still done it. And it was such a powerful feeling. It was so, it was amazing. I just felt like there was this burden lifted and I felt lighter. And at that point, I just, I just prayed to God and I just said, I completely surrender my life to you. Whatever, whatever you have, your will, not mine. I kept saying that over and over. And um, yeah, he just really kind of took over my life. And no matter what anxieties I might have, I would just all, always have this sense of peace and just contentment and like everything was going to be okay. In this process of rebuilding my life, I met my husband. He's comforting. He's He's such an amazing spiritual leader. He helps me grow in my relationship with Christ. We have so much joy in our life. So it's been really cool to see just how much God has changed um, in my life and just, you know, in my heart. I have so much joy. And uh, it's just amazing because all these things that I never thought I could change about myself, uh, he's totally changed. And he's taken everything that has happened and just completely redeemed it. Nobody is too far gone. <laughs> Just ask the nurse who was arrested. <laughs> he can do anything, it's amazing. Would you bow your heads? This begs us to examine ourselves to see if we're in the faith. Now, it's likely you've not lived a life like that of Saul or maybe even Amy. But take a close look. And remember, there is no separation between love for Jesus and commitment to his church. Maybe when you consider your commitment to Jesus' church, you realize there is a good degree of indifference towards him. You give him a lot of leftovers. Jesus doesn't want you to sit on the fence. So gauge the intensity of the fire in your belly to know him, to follow him, serve him, to obey him. Does that fire burn hot? If it doesn't, ask Jesus to burst into your life. Ask him. Ask him to knock you to your knees. 
ask him to create a mess. And remember, the mess is not punishment. It's a rescue. Your past with all its blemishes doesn't disqualify you from God's grace. It doesn't disqualify you from future use. Just as Jesus called out Saul by name, is he calling out your name? Answer him. Who are you, Jesus? Show me. Jesus, there are people in this room who need to be converted. We can't control that. But we can plead with you to burst into hearts you do not occupy. Knock them to their knees. Rescue them. Put a fire in their bellies to know you, follow you, serve you, and obey you. we praise you we thank you that our past with all its stuff doesn't disqualify us from your grace nobody is ever too far gone we praise you that our past doesn't disqualify us from future use work among us I pray whom you save is saved whom you set free is free. We worship you for that now to make much of you, Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen.